The perfect dining room table is out there waiting to be found on homedepot.com. No, you won't have to build it. Because now at the Home Depot, you can get everything from dining chairs to dinnerware. And with easy in-store returns, bring it back if you do decide to build one yourself. Save up to 25% on select dining room furniture, plus free and flexible delivery. Shop decor now at homedepot.com. More saving, more kinds of doing. Valid on select items online only, free delivery on select items $45 or more. Visit homedepot.com for more information. This week, I'm joined by certified swell fella, Julian Mundy, to talk about travel, space slang, and how doing something with care and intention can be an act of devotion. It's Passover, it's Easter weekend, this episode drops on 420. In the words of my friend Katie, blaze it and praise it, my friends. This is Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks. Welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. I had a fabulous time talking to Julian Mundy, the creator of Star Tripper from the Whisper Forge. Mr. Limbs himself. Yes, that's his Twitter handle. No, I completely forgot to ask him to explain it. You ask him. The two of us sat down to talk about the way that Star Tripper evolved from its original conception as a sort of crime adventure to the kind-hearted travelogue it is now. We talked about casting the show and the art of travel. Have a listen. Julian Mundy, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. How are David you? David Reinstrom, how are you? I'm feeling really good. I'm so glad that we get to do this today and that I get to have a nice conversation with my good friend David. God, it's Thank been so you. long. I brought you here to our spacious interview space uh, to ask you about Star Tripper. Yes, you did. Um, originally, this show was called Limitless Ventures, with Festin as the head of a gambling syndicate aboard a space station that was stuck in slip space, right? So it could never be found by the authorities. That's correct. But you left that idea behind in 2013. So tell me about how you got from there to Star Tripper and how Festin Pixis went from being a criminal to a lovable high-flying goober. I would be happy to. So um, I, I guess I was kind of struck with an uh, – I was hit with an impasse, I guess, in, in the development of Limitless Ventures in its initial form because there was a lot more talk about Festin being this sort of semi-religious figure, like a, almost like a cult leader on board this ship because they've – got the keys to the castle. They run the show. You know, we're stuck in this sort of non-space until they say otherwise, so we better toe the line. And there was just a lot of weird lore that I would have to come up with in addition to all of this other sort of action episode to episode. And there were just, it felt very ungainly and sort of shambling and uh and when i got down to actually writing out an episode outline it was not comfortable or smooth in the way that pretty much every single procedure that i've gone through for star tripper has been from the initial outline to working on the uh, edits on the arbor day special with alexander danner like in fact that last part might be the quickest turnaround from first draft to final draft I think I've ever seen. It was maybe nice. two weeks. Wow. Um, yeah, well, but between, um, so Alexander wrote a draft of that months ahead before Serena even had entered the picture. So then I had asked him to kind of 
add her in later, and then he turned around like two weeks. It was magical. Oh, she slots in so perfectly. It was crazy. I, I've never seen the kind of delicate scene work that he pulled off, and like I didn't even remember what the previous drafts had looked like. Honestly, I, it had been that long. I can't. I can't imagine the fight with the bunion working without Serena. No, and like I don't even remember the flow of it honestly like serena <laughs> is such a a fixture now in my mind of this show and i hope that that's becoming more true of the fans as well or but uh, fans i i hope that's becoming more more true of the people listening as well just the the connection for serena is growing more um but going back to your original question yeah um, how did we get from this crime this like semi-divine crime boss to right the the eternal tourist the eternal tourist came about when uh so I, I kind of brought my concerns about this thing feeling like it was just too much of a, a weird patchwork for me to to go anywhere with. And I think uh, I, I must have been talking to Daniel Manning of Ars Paradoxica and other Whisperforge projects, and he basically just sort of hit me with just simplify, take stuff out until you're happy with what you've got. And that was a good step in that direction. And I also owe Dan a lot for coming up with the final title of the show which you know star tripper was a thing oh, star tripper threw was out there. one of theirs yeah that was that was one of his and I, I was just sort of casting around on our group chat for like hey guys i'm i'm just sort of drawing a blank for what to call my show in its new form and dan was like oh well it's about this sort of road trip right and just call it star tripper with uh, two exclamation points and that was in his initial pitch and at no point did i change anything about it, it was like it just sat there on the screen and i was like yeah that looks great that looks fun to read, and it kind of draws the eye immediately. Dan's they them now, right? Uh, I believe so. I would need to check in about that then. Okay. So Daniel uses he they. He they. Oh, thank you. He they. Cool. It is he they. Thank you, Bisha. Um, but yeah, so it's uh, it's just been this sort of process from 2013 to the initial episodes of Star Tripper going out has been this process of streamlining taking things out and really just bringing it all down to the festin level. Um, and when I and when I kind of thought about, well, what did I want to convey with the festin character initially, what I came back to was the idea of this person who is fascinated with all the possibilities that the universe has to offer, but specifically about how to make money and how to like get ahead and really kind of like screw people in certain cases. Um, but this new festin is entirely on the other side of the spectrum, I think, where he's interested in what people are into because he has had such a long time removed from the rest of the universe. And it's all just sort of been in black and white for him. So for uh, something that sticks with me, uh, just a piece of wisdom, like interested people are interesting because they're actively listening to you and wanting to to keep the conversation going. So for Festin to be an active listener and not just sort of a figure in an ivory tower really kind of helps the show move along and for me to make choices as a creator. Yeah, so I think that's that's sort of where it all boils down to is just a lot of like distillation over a few years. Cool. So you've been very open about the various animated shows and video games that inspired Star Tripper. Yes. Outlaw Star, Trigun, Futurama, obviously say nothing of like Hitchhiker's Guide, but tell me about 
Stephen Fry. You alluded to Stephen Fry's travel documentaries on Twitter when folks were doing the my podcast recipe hashtag. That's right. That's right. Yeah. What is it about Stephen Fry's approach to new places that appealed to you? Well, Stephen Fry has always been on my radar since I was a young kid uh, watching things like Blackadder and uh, Fry and Laurie. And he was just this, I, I always saw him as whatever character he was cast as, he's a very warm presence. And he's always, he's got this lovely deep baritone and oh, and wh- whatever voice he's doing. He, it's funny, but he's always kind of nice to be in the room with. Um, and when he started doing his Stephen Fry Abroad miniseries, that was just an excuse for him to sort of bring his most genuine Stephen Fry sort of self to various places all over the world. And there's like a, there's one famous clip from that series where I think a cameraman gets approached by this uh, this indigenous parrot to the Amazon called a kakapo, which is this oh like, in New Zealand, of, yes, he's yes, yes, in, in New this. Zealand. And uh, and it's this like almost like football sized bright green parrot that is that doesn't fly so good from what I understand, um, but it's just got it's a really horny parrot and it just wants to <laughs> hang out with this cameraman and be his friend. And Stephen Fry is just sort of like just fawning over this thing, just refusing to leave, and it's being very affectionate. And he's just like, oh look at him, just and enjoying the experience of something completely new and unexpected. That is just happening to an unfortunate member of his staff that he'll have to give a bonus to at the end of the episode. I think it was his co-presenter, wasn't it? Uh, I, it might, it might have been. I just remember the guy holding a camera and looking very embarrassed <laughs> as this thing just like goes to town on his shoulder. You've been shagged uh, <laughs> by a rare parrot, I think is the right, right. Such a good quote. So I, I just love, um, I love seeing those moments come from an unscripted show, uh, and you know the the moments of genuine warmth and uh, and surprise coming through, um, and you know the happy accidents in any piece of media are a lot of the time what we rem- remember most, uh, whether they're good or bad. Um, sometimes the bloopers are just as good as the the main content. But uh, but you know when when you get episodes like number eleven, which is Festin on this kind of rainforesty planet and he's getting hounded by what sounds like goat panda penguins. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, the moments like that, I, I just, oh, that's definitely Stephen Fry coming through. And the, the travelogue aspect of it and Stephen Fry being also a very good active listener is, I, I think, some of the DNA that comes through there. That's wonderful. Yeah. So in, in my own life, I try to be an active listener. I don't always succeed. And I'm constantly worried that I'm talking too much, even on this podcast where you asked me to talk about myself and my show. No, you're doing great, baby. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's just sort of naturally where I fall into. Like interested people are interesting. And I find Stephen Fry so interesting because he is always looking at you in this way that he is just taking in as much as he can. I really like that. Yeah. And so you tried to build in that that approach for Festin. Yeah, just the the idea that whatever he's doing, it's it's out of a genuine desire to expand his uh his sort of experience base and to to take in new things in a way that isn't mean-spirited, uh but also if stuff goes a little wrong in the process, what are you going to do? That's life, you know. This is the crazy universe and I can only control so much. Sure. So I I loved Festin from the moment he purchased the Star Tripper, but I think the moment that I I felt like truly annihilated by Ian McEwen's performance is 
um, in in ready to launch when Festin is handed a glass of pure stimulant in the form of Daxi cleansing, very extremely lime fusion. Yes. How did you know that Ian was the guy for the job? Well, uh, I I had a lot of moments where I would just sort of nod my head and really just say like I have no notes, or I would have to just sort of stifle a laugh with Misha. You know, look, I was looking at Misha the whole time, just we looking at each other and just hands over our mouths, trying not to ruin a very very good take with our idiot voices coming through. But uh, but like things like Festin's uh, Festin's roll down the hill in that episode actually came a little earlier in that recording session, but we would ask Ian, okay, now you're doing the roll down the hill. Uh, just, you know, feel the efforts, sell it, and then we hear actual thumping on the walls of the booth. So I am, I'm sitting where he was on that day, and I can see where he would have just sort of thrown himself around these little walls, because I'm, I'm in a tight sort of corner here, but we would just hear thump, 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 oh ah, ah, thump, 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 ah, ah. And he's like, well, that's how he's going to do it. <laughs> it works. It, I have no problems there. Uh, and so Ian is just a nice guy to be in the room with. He's also super interested and has like a lot of fun and interesting things to say. So I don't know. He's he's a good guy. I, I generally think that most of what we get from Festin is just letting Ian be Ian. Sure. Well, it's, it's just so interesting to me because his performance as Agent Green in Bright Sessions, mm -hmm. this is like a completely different side to him. He's so restrained in the Bright Sessions. And I, I listen to some of the, the episodes now and I'm like, wow, yeah, the, our, we just really let a lot of stuff come out after many episodes of being a very much in the pocket kind of guy. And, and having to really kind of suppress a lot of what I know are Ian's natural instincts. Well, I feel like I've seen so many different aspects of him as an actor now. Yeah. Between... He's got a lot of sides. The Bright Sessions and then him as a romantic lead uh, in Deck the Halls with Matrimony. And now in Star Tripper, right? Like there's... Yeah. I mean, you know. Oh, absolutely. And, and part of the reason why I think we picked Ian was because we had some knowledge of his his dynamic range vocally, but also his range as an actor. And just the the fact that Star Tripper varies so much from episode to episode in terms of structure, content, you know, the, the people that you're meeting. And and he is always able to roll with the punches and and handle whatever sci-fi garbage I'm throwing at him in a, a very <laughs> handy sort of way. He's uh he's very deft in how he handles the uh the planet and people names that I try to do phonetically, but I don't always succeed in making it clear. Sure. What, what would you say the core ethos of the show is? The ethos of the show, I would say, is just one of trying to break out of a routine. I, I know that the sort of person I am, I'm always hungry for something new, for a new experience, but for various reasons, you know, you have to stay where you are most of the time and do the same routine most of the time. So I kind of view this show as a way for people to, to get something unexpected in their daily lives that they don't 
really have an expectation of. They can't they can't really feel as though, okay, where's the next good turn coming from? Because, you know, that's that's just life, right? But if there's a show that is dependable in terms of quality, but also is constantly changing its its stance in terms of content or in terms of the kind of stories that we're telling, I I think that can only be a good thing. And you know, not losing focus of of wanting to experience something new in a completely genuine way. To me, I read Festin as a very particular kind of fantasy, right? He's he's mm-hmm. a man who can go absolutely anywhere, make friends with anyone, entice people into bed with like the sheer charismatic power of his podcast alone, right? I mean, that that one's a fluke though. Like, <laughs> let's be real, that is not a a replicatable uh situation i think in 99.9 percent of cases sure (laughs) but i just for for that moment specifically i uh i wanted to kind of inject a little bit more of uh i don't know this is a show not just for kids i think is that is that just because ripple has like a like a belt notching thing that she does maybe that might just be part of part of their thing um but i think you know they're they're down for it as a good a time as Festin is. And I think that there's, they, like Ripple sees a kindred spirit in Festin. Gotcha. But I'm, I'm sorry, you were asking another question. Oh, what, what is, what does this fantasy represent for you? I mean, you, you were just talking about that, right? Yeah, yeah. And it is, it is kind of something that is a part of my life in that I was originally, uh, I'm sort of a New York transplant to the West Coast as of the last four years or so. And, um, I got very used to sort of the certain sights and sounds of where I grew up. And I also had the opportunity, on the other hand, to travel to uh, to Japan, to London when I was very young, um, Japan a couple times, and then I studied abroad for a semester in Prague. Um, so I've had a taste of the kind of experiences that are out there beyond where my, you know, wake up, go to bed sort of cycle would be. And I just... I'm always hungry for that, and I would love to travel to more countries and go back to some of the others that I've been to. Uh, and so, yeah, I, there there is definitely some wish fulfillment and some self-insertion, I guess, into the Fessin character just because I get to inject some of my own enthusiasm for the new experiences and for the the sensations of travel that that he does without, you know, in my own life having, you know, necessarily the means to do that. Well, I, I feel like to, to expand it out beyond just you and self-insertion, mm-hmm. the, the Festin fantasy to me speaks of like a desire to be loved and appreciated in a time when everything is like really horrendous, right? And Americans have a bad reputation abroad because of how yeah. crappy our president is, and it feels yeah. like the planet is collapsing around us. And wouldn't it just be nice if you could just go somewhere and befriend someone on the sheer power of your charisma and, like, have a little piece of home with you wherever you were. Yeah, you know, share share something with someone, they share something with you, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the most meaningful relationship in the world, but I've, I've certainly had moments, just little one-off encounters on the street where I had maybe a five to ten minute conversation with a random person and I can still recall the topics that we talked about. And I, like many of our listeners, probably have been feeling the strain of a world where 
our technology is, you know, more advanced than ever. We're finding new utilities for it every day, but also we're kind of, we're falling behind the curve of how we fall into the picture and, and the sort of empathetic technologies are not being leveraged that way. So social media in a lot of ways makes people feel isolated if they don't feel as though they are engaged or participating. And it, it compounds certain problems. And for, for me, myself, I walked away from Facebook for a number of years because I was having some health issues and uh, some personal things going on. And I just couldn't really make it, you know, much beyond my house for a, a little while. And I would see people living their lives and that was just not good for mental health. So I, I just wanted to put out something th- that was mine that had come from me, but then also would enable people to kind of feel like they could trust other people again. Mm-hmm. Um, imagining a world where we can trust each other and and do something for each other without looking for an angle. Um, and, you know, even in the world of Star Tripper, that doesn't always come to pass because we have Kozak McClee in episode 10, uh, who just completely pulls a fast one on Festin because he is prone to trusting people. And even when he gets kind of a weird vibe, he's like, oh, he'll probably be fine. He can't hurt anything. He has to deal with the consequences of maybe making a miscalculation. Um, So I think that the Star Tripper universe is one that we don't want to divorce from reality, but we want to present uh, an alternative that maybe we can shoot for. That's kind of been my vague goal in doing all this. Nice. Oh, yeah. I, it, it gets very much into, like, I don't know, the feelings of isolation are the toughest to overcome. And sometimes you want isolation, but podcasting is a great way to build empathy. Um, and, and telling good stories is the fastest way to do that. Uh, to, take us, to take us back to the, the story context of Star Tripper. Yeah. So there's this trope that TV tropes calls Mighty Whitey, right? The idea of the mm-hmm. outsider who's almost always a white person, usually a man who comes into a new culture and masters it, you know, becomes the last samurai right. where he saves the cat aliens or whatever. And Festin's a sweetheart and he screws up a lot, but he still pulls off some like incredible shit throughout the series. So my question is, how do you walk the line of not making Festin into this Superman tourist who can do everything? while still making him competent enough to be entertaining? Right. Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I I come at it in terms of definitely being aware of that trope, for one thing. But um, but how I kind of look at Festin when I'm writing an episode in, in a scenario in which he has to be active is kind of what is his skill set already? What has he learned from his experiences from the beginning of the show to now? And uh, how how complete is his mastery of those concepts? Um, so with a situation like in episode five, where they're having to escape from giant centipedes, basically in a, a giant moon, um, he he knows something. He, well, he knows enough to analyze something about where they are in order to to find a way out. And I think that comes from him being an analytical thinker. Um, just sort of by habit, by his job, he's having to analyze and, okay, put this here, do this. And he's very kind of good at making those utilitarian connections. Um, But 
I think he has also shown himself to be conceptually a little behind the curve where he asks uh, a character in episode seven when uh, he runs into an earthling. It's like, you call your planet dirt? It's like, no, no, it's a naming convention. Like you, you know this about planets, right? And so certain inconsistencies about his knowledge are, I think, experiential. He's, he's got holes in there and he's trying to fill in the gaps. But when it comes to things like problem solving and, and being kind of, again, an, an active participant in his own life now, he, uh, he's a lot better in that way. But yeah, the, the, the idea of the sort of Gary stew, uh, is something that I wanted to steer away from very heavily because screwing up is half the fun of these stories. Sure. What what is it? Let's flag. What's a what's a Gary Stew? A Gary Stew. So um, basically, the idea of if anyone has seen shows like I don't know Sword Art Online, things like that, where you have your protagonist character walk in with a virtually maxed out experience bar. You know, they 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 seem to have all the answers to have just the the best super powerful gear or equipment, and they just never really seem to encounter an actual threat, and it takes some of the stakes out of everything. So by making Festin kind of a congenital screw-up sometimes, like he, his family is a bunch of goofballs we've heard about, his uncle who ran a, a hover chair into a desk, um, he, he is sort of open to, to learning from his experiences rather than just sort of being the consummate professional about everything, just style beasting all over everything that he encounters. That's just not fun or interesting. Like if anyone's ever played a video game with God Mode on, you get bored after about half an hour. Sure. One critique that we pulled out of the many like five-star reviews of Star Tripper was that for the first half of the first season, there are hardly any female-voiced characters besides Proxy. Aha, yes. And Heather, our researcher, felt that this was strange, right? Because you love Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Parks and Rec, these Mike Schur shows that have basically gender parody for roles. Mm -hmm. But then as you get into the back half of the season, you get episodes with much more meatier roles for women-identified characters. Um, Serena the Sapphire Blade, Ripple, Miyazo, Elo, Leader. What what happened? It seems like there's a real bright line between episodes seven and eight, between Lost in the Mail and Free Swimmer of the Doll. Was there like a conscious decision there, or did it start happening on its own? It, I think it kind of started happening on its own. Like, I, I we had seen comments about that, and that was something that I in private had said like, okay, I hear you. I definitely understand. Be patient. Um, because the way that I had written the first season was kind of, I, I wrote the first nine in a flash, like in a, a stretch of maybe two to three months. And then the last four or so episodes came out a little bit slower. Um, so I had a little more time and I kind of saw the launch of Star Tripper on a few of those scripts before they were fully completed. So in certain ways, I could I could tweak the roles or, or give better um, characterization to certain characters, give them more scenes, more screen time. But this that the the parody thing was something that I wanted there to be. Of course, like this is an alien show with you know various representative races and species, and uh, some species might have sixteen genders. Who the hell knows? So um, sure. 
And but no, uh, specifically to the uh, to to roles with female identifying characters, Serena was always sort of hovering there, ready to drop, and I was always excited for the finale to come. Um, but then part of it was casting. Uh, or writing the characters in a non-gender specific way. So when it came down to that and we were presented with a choice of, well, who do we cast as Elo or as the hermit that we meet in episode 11, um, we kind of just looked at the 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 actors that we had in front of us and we we put out kind of a generalized non-gender specific casting call for some of those. And the responses that we got were really just sort of a process of elimination. And most of those final picks ended up being female actresses, and they were fantastic. You know, Karama Donkwa is amazing. Uh, Sammy Lappin, we could not do without. Uh, Katie Butterwitz is amazing. Paula Deeming, uh, it just I, I, I could go on and on. But yeah, these are just things that I wanted to, and, and just sort of giving lady characters better things to do on screen. It's something that I've seen happening more and more recently. It's given me a lot of encouragement. Um, and I also, this is going back to my college days, but I wrote a, a screenplay about a, a lesbian animal tamer in L.A. who has to train an illegally poached Black Panther and uh, simultaneously kind of get her estranged girlfriend out of some trouble. There's a lot of stuff going on. So writing characters like that is a lot more fun to me than, you know, uh, uh, Space Marine number 46. Sure. And yeah, I, I guess just looking for new and novel ways to characterize was maybe uh, a, like a side effect of that became, oh, we have more female identifying roles. I'm, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you folded that critique in then. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, the, and that is a thing that we, we always are keeping our ear to the ground, but we also believe very heavily in the kind of story that we're telling in the way that we're telling it. So when we get feedback like that, it certainly kind of gives us impetus to to pay more careful attention, and specifically me, because I'm usually structuring these things, um, to, to pay more careful attention to how things are structured and balanced, because balance is important, right? So you, you mentioned a, a pretty clear dividing line between one feeling and the other. So if I can sort of spread that out and make it feel more balanced for season two, then I've done my job as a showrunner. And that's part of maybe some inexperience on my part. Sure. Is it is it weird to you that people on the internet say things are zowie now? Uh, a little. Like, it's, let's be real, it's kind of a dorky phrase. I came up with a dorky phrase in a, in a sci-fi universe, and people ran with it, and it delights me every day. Can you, can you tell me more about, like, cack and zowie and more referential words like fruit and zarking? Oh, sure. Well, you know, I I would pepper in occasional, you know, o- overt references to atoms or things like that with zarking and fruit, um, but only because I wanted to maybe give the intimation but not explicitly state that we could share a universe um, and that maybe some of that has just sort of come down and uh, and made its way into the vernacular of wherever we are. Um, but with Kak and Zowie, I, I'd seen these sort of trajectories of shows like Battlestar Galactica and how they use the same expletive for every situation. Uh-huh. Um, and that's a little weird. It's a little weird that they apply that to every single conversation that they have. So 
number one, giving alternatives to our characters is important because one curse word, really? That's, <laughs> uh, I don't know. What a, what a benighted vocabulary. Right, or, or something uh, more um, directly lore-related, like Sephrazai, you know, as, as a thing of, like, Jesus Christ. Um, there being uh, a history there that we haven't said anything about yet, but it gives me as a writer a lot of freedom to pick up a thread that I left episodes ago and then run with it on a new track because that's how I write this show. It's just whatever whatever f- comes out of the brain is just kind of what I put down. And then if people laugh, I make a show out of it. That's fabouche. No, it, it is kind of a, a, a marvelously freeing process writing this show. What is the difference between Cac and Zark? Cac and Zark. Well, Zark, I think is Zark is a little more in the in the fuck family. Like I, I don't know. Something about it seems a little bit, bit more weighty. But Cac is like it's more towards the realm of shit. You know, it's a little shit, damn crap. It's a little bit more. It doesn't hit the ear as hard. Okay. Uh, to to me anyway, I think that maybe it's a little bit more diminutive, but I I just like having alternative curse words that still maintain what you need to have a good curse word, and it's hard to land it because there there are other shows which I am blanking on, but I've I've heard other uh, sci-fi and fantasy curses that are like five to six syllables. I'm like, no, thank you, nope, nope, one two tops. Gotta spit it out. That is not what an expletive is for five to six syllables. Get out of here. I'm not. Scoyatel. What is that? That's I, that's a faction in The Witcher, but you thought it could be a curse, didn't you? I didn't know what it was. TBQH. Yeah. Fa- fantasy, uh, fantasy rules are not hard and fast. Sci-fi are uh, not super hard and fast, but, you know, you gotta, you gotta think about it in a practical sense sometimes because actors have to say these things. Right. Um, but then also it has to feel as though it belongs in your world and not, uh, as though it is again, kind of like rootless or without any context. How, how much of Festin lives in you or rather how much of you wants to be Festin? I would love to have the freedom of movement that he has. Um, and just sort of, he, he seems like a very plastic individual. He's, he's got some bounce to him. <laughs> um, and more and more these days, I kind of feel as though I am losing some of my stretch and my bounce, um, and I'm I'm hoping to find ways around that and to to reverse that. But uh, I I look at Festin and see a person that I would love to share a beer with and just get into trouble with because I I tend towards being an introvert and I tend towards kind of hermiting when things are not really going on and. I can entertain myself for a long period of time. So for someone to come in and get me out of my seat for a little bit, I think is always something that I value. Will we find out more about what drove him to leave Lorvin? Like, is there more behind his decision or was he just sick of being a paper pusher? I'm going to leave that a little nebulous at the moment. Um, but I, I will say that it takes a lot to get someone to just uproot their entire existence and say goodbye to all their friends and family and a lifestyle and all the familiar sights and sounds. But it's 
it's also something that I identify with a lot. And I, I understand sometimes you just need something new to, to get you to push yourself to a, I don't know, a better iteration of who you were. Um, because that's sort of how I try to live my life is that if I can continue with a student mentality and, and continue to learn and not feel as though I've exhausted everything there is to know, uh, then I'm, I'm, still, I'm still engaged. I'm still a participant in the world. And I think as soon as you close off what you get interested in and limit yourself, then you're kind of on the downward spiral. And uh, I, I hope to keep that from happening as long as I can. What is, what is your best imagined life for yourself? Like when you're, when you're just sort of in fantasy mode, what, what kind of life would you most want to have? Oh God, to be honest, I, I rarely even allow myself moments of fantasy mode to, to be perfectly honest with you these days. Um, but I, there, there are a lot of things that I know that I've been lacking in my life and, uh, just feeling as though, and I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this can relate to the idea of not remembering the last time they felt whole in whatever sense they might want to take that. But um, I, I had a moment recently where I was talking to someone and I I had that thought and it it got on top of me a little bit. And I uh, I think I would just want to, to, whatever form my life ends up taking, I just hope that I end up feeling whole, you know? If you're, if you're comfortable with it, what, what makes you feel whole? I guess um, I, would, I would boil it down to not worrying about myself at a baseline level, but then also not feeling as though I had to worry about a lot of the people in my life, if that makes any sense. I, I, I haven't put any thought towards verbalizing that, uh, that wish, I guess, because it's, it's hard to, to think that it could be a possibility. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and letting myself think that it could be is part of the process. Sure. Interesting. So like giving yourself the, the latitude to, to imagine. Yeah. And, and just not being such a, a pessimist is part of, part of the ethos of Star Tripper as well, I guess. And I, in, in high school, I was certainly a very cynical person. I leaned into being uh, an atheist and, and and kind of taking some pleasure in uh, in bucking like conventional notions of things, but then as I as I learned more about things like spiritual spiritualism and just the idea of a spirit being separate from the idea of what religion has anything to do with, you know, the the spirit is something that can flourish in any circumstance if it if it really puts some time and devotion into what it's doing like what what I learned in in one course uh in college was that any act can be an act of devotion um from doing your yard work to you know being with your significant other to building a house it it's all something that if you put yourself into it if you imbue something of yourself into that thing then that thing stands stronger. That's really lovely. 
Well, thank you. Julian, what kind of traveler are you, would you say? Because you you were saying you've been all over the world. You had uh, a couple of international adventures. You had this glorious cross-country odyssey, you know, flinging yourself into an unknown future. What What are you like when you travel? I like to think that I'm a good traveler. Yeah, what does that what does that mean for you? Right, and uh, I, like like Stephen Fry that I mentioned, number one, just being interested, um, not not staying nose down in a guidebook or in my phone or in a map or anything like that, and really paying attention to where I am and how people navigate their space because you learn much more about a space by how other people live within it than you ever will from looking at a, a, a set of statistics. Um, so I'm, I always want to know, you know, what's, what's your favorite place to eat nearby? You know, where, where's your favorite little dive bar that no one would ever think about going to, but this actually is like the best, uh, the best drinks, the best sort of scenery, um, the, the best people and, and really just taking an interest in the, the more granular aspects of a place, because you'll have to probably deal with those more in your day-to-day life. If you intend to make a place your home, then you better get to know it. Um, so I, I try to do that wherever I can and really, um, like, of course, being respectful to whatever culture or place that you're in, if, like, that that's basic stuff, but um, not not just going through the motions to to avoid looking bad, but to actually internalize something about what you're doing. Um, so... A good example would be uh, when I was in Japan the second time, I got to go as kind of an uh, an assistant to my dad, a sort of like unpaid intern. But we we went to a bunch of different museums all over the islands to see their storage facilities so that Vassar could send some paintings over there for a show. And I got to go to various cities all over Japan, and I saw every kind of cut that you might get of Japan, including one that looked kind of like Miami. Like, Miyazaki looks very sort of like Miami back in the 80s. It's a strange place. Um, just because of, like, how the economic boom happened and then left that place behind. Where Where is Miyazaki in Japan? Miyazaki, I believe, is more towards the south of the islands, but okay. don't quote me on that. It's been okay. a little while. Um, but it um, it is kind of the most starkly um, of a period than I think anywhere else I've seen in Japan because like you have the more rural communities that still have the ancient houses, you know, hundreds if not thousands of years old, some of them. Uh, but then you run into places like Miyazaki, which uh, have the sort of pastel, almost vaporwave look to them. <laughs> like if you walk down the street, they have palm trees and like stucco and pastels in there. And I was so kind of struck by this and how different it felt in Fukuoka, which is very high tech, and uh, Tokyo, which is very much kind of the the hustle and bustle urban center of Japan, and Kyoto, which is the Japanese heritage capital, basically. Um, And this place clearly was sort of built to make a bunch of money overnight. And then when the bubble popped in the 90s, everybody left. And it feels very much like a, a shell of what it was. And I wasn't expecting that when I went. So when when you get into the kind of granular details of a place, you learn more about what it is and, and how its people live there. Um, and I guess to, to jump right to uh, another 
thing related, uh, I immediately after graduating from college, I did some research for a documentary that ended up going nowhere. Uh, but what I did get to do in the process was do a lot of research about Poughkeepsie, which is my hometown from the time when I was five months old. And I went to Vassar. And from my first day at Vassar to when I graduated, I knew comparatively nothing about the the sort of suffrage movement that went through there and really the immigrant populations that made that work. Um, and so I, I learned a lot more about my hometown right before I left it. And that's an interesting feeling to have, but I now have so much more appreciation for it. Hmm. Julian, this has been so nice. Thank you so much for coming on RDR with me. This was fabulous. Absolutely, man. And I, I could not be more excited to to see where we all go next. Yeah, dude. And uh, and that includes you. Ah. Oh, I think after this I'm going to go make dinner. Oh, excellent. I think <laughs> I I need to I need to go like have a have a nice nice long look at a sunset or something and just like relax cuz cuz man, what a week. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <sighs> but David again, thank you so so much and um to everyone listening. Thank you, because I, I don't know that I have the adequate words. <laughs> Fabulous. Thanks, Julian. Man, I love that dude, and I love his show, and if you love his show too, head on over to patreon.com slash startripper and throw him a buck or two. Radio Drama Revival also has a Patreon, and that means that Radio Drama Revival is brought to you this week by Jeff Goldman, Leon, and Eric Runkel. Join their ranks and goof around with us in our Discord server. Did you know that we also have a sweet website? It's radiodramarevival.com. You can listen to our backlog, browse by genre, and look at our bios and cute faces. Faces. We all got them. Chag Sameach, nerds, Radio Drama Revival is brought to you by matzah. Yes, matzah, the bread of affliction. It's flat, it's got holes, and that's basically the only kind thing I can say about it. That's, okay, that's not strictly true. Matzah toffee, Google that shit, that's a revelation and a half. All I can say is you're welcome, and listen to the Passover episode of Spirits. Love ya, bye! And now, your moment of will. Hey, listener. Last week, I asked you which sci-fi piece of media spawned its own mathematic algorithm and theorem. The answer is Futurama. On Futurama's writing staff, there were several PhD candidates and PhD holders, including Ken Keeler, who holds a PhD in applied mathematics. The episode that they did this for is a season six episode called The Prisoner of Benda, and it was all about body swaps. And the theorem proves that regardless of how many swaps there are between minds and bodies, they can all be restored to their original bodies using only two extra people. Now, I don't know how this worked. I watched the episode. I don't have a PhD in math. I have a bachelor's in English ed, and I'm pursuing a master's in English. English. Um, so I recommend that you just watch the episode. It is fine. Not one of their best, but you know, it's something. And it did a mathy thing. So the answer is Futurama. And hey, that joke that you told in the middle of a conversation and you got kind of talked over and people didn't really seem to notice it. It was super funny, like way underrated. I laughed really hard. Ms. Williams, what time is it? It's uh, 7, 8, I said, Ms. Oh. Williams, what time oh. is it? 
credit credits time. Hell yeah, it's credits time. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Will Williams. Our interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our submissions editor is Elena Fernandez-Collins. Our social media manager is James Oliva. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouse. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. When it comes to their kids, dads don't have favorites. When it comes to their tools, they do. And the Home Depot has every one of them. Top brands like Makita and DeWalt. Exclusive brands like Ryobi, Husky, and Rigid. Even Milwaukee. With an M12 12-volt 5-tool kit, now just $199. Today is the day for doing. And for dad. With the best selection of his favorite tools only at the Home Depot. More saving. More doing. Offer valid through June 19th while supplies last. When it comes to their kids, dads don't have favorites. When it comes to their tools, they do. And the Home Depot has every one of them. Top brands like Makita and DeWalt. Exclusive brands like Ryobi, Husky, and Rigid. Even Milwaukee. With an M12 12-volt 5-tool kit, now just $199. Today is the day for doing. And for dad. With the best selection of his favorite tools only at the Home Depot. More saving. More doing. Offer valid through June 19th while supplies last.